less conversation, a little more Elvis, please. All this aggravation is satisfaction in me. Come on, baby, let's start talking. Hello and welcome to episode three of A Little Less Conversation, A Little More Elvis. Mark Andrew, how are you? Good, mate. Yourself? I'm very well, thank you. We have a fascinating guest. This bloke, uh, this bloke's one of the the real characters of that Memphis kind of uh, bunch of people, isn't he? Yeah, Charles Stone. He was Elvis's tour, tour producer. So he actually had a good relationship with the Colonel as well. So I think we're going to hear the other side of... Um, you know, Elvis's management, you know. So um, Charles was in charge of selling every ticket to Elvis's concerts and, um, you know, he's got a great story and um, he obviously did very well and the colonel liked him and he sort of um, got on board and just worked full-time for Elvis. It's almost, uh, you know, the uh, the soup of the day to be uh, to have your, your, your anti-colonel story, but as you quite rightly pointed out, uh, Charles has a different view of the colonel in terms of he actually loved the colonel. Yeah, and that's very interesting. And, I mean, there's always two sides of the story. I mean, you know, me personally, I always think the colonel you know, was a bit shafty and <laughs> was in it more for himself, you know. Um, and Elvis was very loyal to the colonel, you know. He, you know, he's – and I, I think he felt threatened, you know, because he was with the colonel from such a young age and Elvis really stayed pretty young in mind, yep. you know. So, you know, never really – he only stood up to him a few times, you know. So, But anyway, he let's listen to his stories. I think it, it's going to be great. Yep. Some amazing stories, and here he is, the tour producer for Elvis Presley, Charles Stone. So, do you uh, have do you have a lot of stuff, uh, as in you know memorabilia stuff from from those days, Charles? I do have some. I didn't save it all, but I wish I had them now. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I've got all my tour books and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. What would be your prized possession out of out of all the stuff that you've got? Is it the necklace? Oh, no doubt. I, my TCB, absolutely, yeah, mm. without a doubt. But the friendships, I mean, you know, we were all family. When you yeah. work seven years together, you become a family. Charles has got a great story because um, he was um, tour producer for uh, Chicago and was it Led Zeppelin, Charles? Yeah, we did, you know, with all due respect, we did probably 80% of all the rock acts uh, in the in the in the business, I've done the Stones, the Who. I've worked all the shows. Yeah, wow. <laughs> Take us back to 1963 and how how a forklift driver becomes a tour manager. Well, you did some homework, didn't you? Yeah. Well, see, these days, these days, that, that doesn't happen anymore. You don't have people come from other industries, but because this industry was evolving and and starting, people were coming from other other walks of life and and. Almost stumbling into into what finished up being their life, and that's kind of what happened with me. You know, just at the right place at the right time for everything. Uh, yeah, forklift, and I, you're the only one that's ever said it that way. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell us how that happened. Uh, I was working on the dock at Texas Instruments, driving a forklift, and going to school in the you know at night. My next door neighbors were in a band. They had a record and it started getting a little airplay. And the next thing I know, they got booked on American Bandstand. And so they come over to me and say, look, Charles, if you'll call these three people, 
tell them we'll work for $1,000, we'll pay you 10%. I didn't know what the hell I was doing, so I made the phone call. Oh, yeah, they're hot right now. We'll take them. Well, I made $300 in about 20 minutes. Working on the dock, driving a forklift, I was making $90 a week. Yeah, wow. I thought, "Uh uh-oh, boy, I have found a new trip here. So there was a national booking agency here in Dallas called Associated Booking. And the uh, manager, the office manager, whoever's in charge of it, called me wanting to book the the band with the five Americans. And they had a song called Western Union. Oh, yeah. You guys probably never heard it. Oh, no, you we know the song. Yeah, no, the song. Hit <laughs> so anyway, he calls me. Somehow he found out I was there with my neighbors. I was helping them. And he said, I want to book them for so-and-so. I said, well, I have a, I have a chat with him because I didn't know what the hell I was doing. And he said, well, look, can you come see me? So I go to his office here in Dallas. I look on the wall. There's Louis Armstrong. There's Freedom's Clearwater, Little Richard, Fats Domino. Like, damn, you know, he said, you want to go to work for me? I said, doing what? <laughs> Don't forget, I'm a naive little kid. Yeah. He said, become an actor for all my acts. I said, well, how much are you going to pay me? He said, $90 a week. <laughs> I said, well, that's sure better than driving a forklift, no matter what the deal is. So that's, that's where I got started in the business. I was very successful at booking. And when Contras West decided to open a Dallas office, Terry Bassett came to town and he immediately went to the Five Americans record label and they recommended me to show him around. So I took him and his wife, my wife, and for a week, took him to every concert venue, every nightclub that used entertainment. And then he said, well, you want to come work for me? (laughs) I said, doing what? I always ask that question, doing what? And he said, promoting shows. I said, oh, hell yeah. I don't have to sell them anymore. And that's where it all started. Charles, um, back then there was no social media. So how did you promote the shows back then, just in the newspapers and posters and billboards, things like that? Newspaper and radio. Radio was the primary thing. Newspaper, yeah, but radio primarily. Because everybody listened to the radio back then. Yeah. You know, like I say, we didn't have social media or anything. So yeah. radio was, and we would normally get a radio to be the sponsor of the show. KLIF Presents or whatever, you know. Yeah. And that's kind of how it worked. And we didn't have computer tickets either. How did, right. how did the, um, tell us how the, the, the connection to get you to, to the Elvis part of it, how did, how did that all kind of take place? How did Colonel Tom find you? Well, he didn't actually find me. What happened was... As you guys know the story about Jerry Weintraub getting the tour. Well, Jerry managed John Denver. We booked John Denver shows, and Jerry and all of our company became very friendly. Jerry Weintraub wanted to tour. He bugged the colonel so much, and the colonel said, okay, come see me, but bring a million-dollar cashier's check or a million-dollar check. Well, Jerry didn't have a million dollars back then. So he came to us because we were that was the only relationship we really had. He had. And in case you didn't know, but Danny Kay, the movie star, was the primary money in Concerts West. He also owned the baseball team in Seattle. So they come up with a million-dollar cashier's check, gave it to Jerry. Jerry flew to Vegas with Tom Hewlett. But Mr. Hewlett was not allowed to go up to meet the colonel. It was only just Jerry. 
And Jerry goes up, and Tom said he's up there for about 30 minutes and comes back down. He said, well, what happened? He says, we're going to have a tour. He said, well, when? He said, well, he said he would, Colonel said he would call me. He said, well, what's the deal? He said, I don't know. Colonel said he would call and make a deal. He said, well, what about the money? He said, well, I left the check with the colonel. Did you get a receipt? He said, no. So <laughs> right at that point, us doing being concert business, thinking, what in the world did this happen? Sure enough, about a week later, the colonel called and said, okay, you want to do a tour? At the end of the first tour, when he went to settle up, the colonel gave him a million-dollar cash check back. He never cashed it. <laughs> that's, uh, that's a new level of trust, uh, particularly in those days, I would have thought. But with Colonel Parker, if, if, you ever, if he ever gave you his word, you didn't need a contract. His word was as good as gold because he was old school. And, you know, and the, you know, not today, but back even when I was growing up, your word was your bond. How did, how did he get you? Okay. In Alabama, there's a venue that I worked with Chicago, Led Zeppelin, Three Dog Night. And it was a venue that everything was do-it-yourself. There was no box office staff, no stagehand union, nothing. So I had to hire bank tellers to sell tickets and hire a different company to go do the stagehands, et cetera. So the colonel remembered a catfish restaurant in Montgomery, Alabama, and he wanted to play the show there. Well, I was with Frank Sinatra at the moment, and I get a call backstage to go down and sell tickets for the Elvis show. We got the tour. I said, hot, damn, okay. So I go down and hire my normal bank tellers, put tickets on sale, and don't forget, there's no computer. It's all one at a time. Took maybe six, seven hours to sell 10,000 tickets. So I had a phone number to call. I called the phone number. I said, nice to meet you, Mr. Hewlett. He said, who's calling? I said, Charles Stone. He said, are you in Alabama? And I said, yes. He said, well, this is the colonel. I locked up. I never expected to be talking to Colonel Parker. Because no matter what people say, he was a legend in our industry. He said, this is a colonel. I said, he said, are you in the box office? I said, yes, sir. I immediately started calling him, sir. And he said, I want you to look in every drawer and see if there's any tickets left. I said, well, Colonel, I have balanced the money with my manifest. Mr. Stone, <laughs> I mean, it came through the phone and got my attention. So I sat and opened and closed the same drawer six times. No, sir, there are no tickets left. You've done a good job. You need to come to California. I said, well, I'm supposed to go back with the Sinatra show, Colonel. Just a moment. So Jerry Weintraub gets on the phone, says, Charlie, come out here. I'll send somebody else to there. So I fly to California. And I'm out there for four or five days. The colonel took an instant liking to me and started booking tours, and the rest is history. That's all I did for like six and a half years. Did you like him, Charles? Was he a likable human being? Oh, I loved him like a father. He was a great man. All the stories you hear, you know, that's not true. No, he treated me like a son, to be honest with you. And he treated Elvis like a son. Uh, if he liked you, man, you know, you grew to love him because of the way uh, he treated you. And I loved him. I loved him. And he was so good to my family and my kids. And I sat and watched some of the deals and how he handled Elvis. Nobody else would have could have done that. I mean, there's a story where he was traveling uh, with you in the car somewhere. and um... Yeah, that's when I thought I was going to be fired. 
I was driving him from Las Vegas to Palm Springs. You go through the desert. Well, I'd never driven through the desert in my whole life. And I'm doing about 80 because, I mean, you're out there in the middle. There's not even a, a car in sight anywhere. And I didn't know about what they call these little gully washers where the water washes down. And I hit one of those. He bit his cigar right half in two. It bottomed out so hard. And the, the lip part fell in his lap. And I'm looking. He said, Charlie, you might want to slow down a little. And I look over there. and He's picking up the lip part. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, I'm fired. That's all he ever said about it. <laughs> but he chomped it right half in two. We hit so hard. So, obviously, you get to meet Elvis. How did, uh, t- tell us about your first meeting with, with, with Elvis Presley. Well, the first time I met him, it's really strange because up until I started doing the Elvis stuff, you become friends and you talk to the acts because you know, you're all doing things together. But – for whatever reason, Tom Hewlett told me, don't talk to Elvis. Okay. What am I supposed to do? He said, you meet him at the door, take him to the dressing room. Okay, fine. I won't talk to him if that's what you're worried about. I'd always meet him at the back door. And don't forget, I set up all the security at the venue and in the hotel for Elvis. So no matter if we're walking down the hall or where we're going, Elvis is walking beside me or right behind me. And I'm talking to Dick or Joe or somebody, and I'm leaning over around him and saying, we turn right, we turn left, go straight. So after about maybe a week, Elvis grabs my arm and stops me. He says, who are you? (laughs) (laughs) I said, I'm Charles Stone. I work for Mr. Weintraub, Mr. Hiller. I'm Elvis Presley and had me in his hand to shake his hand as if I didn't know that. And after that, we became friends and everything worked out. But um, I didn't make the first move. And one day on the airplane, we were talking, and Esposito said, said something. And I said, well, you know, I was told not to talk to Elvis. Joe said, why? I said, hell, I don't know. Uh, Esposito and his crew never knew anything. It was just Hewlett, I guess, was afraid I'd say the wrong thing. I don't know. Yeah. But anyway, it all worked out, and I was very good at what I did. Were they extravagant tours, Charles? In terms of you know, these days we we talk about riders, and it's almost like a, a, a you know a banquet or a, or a wedding goes on backstage before the the band actually gets anywhere near going on stage. Well, it was 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 what was it like? The, what you're asking about was six Coca Colas, six cups, and a bucket of ice in Elvis's room. That's it. No catering, nothing. Mm-hmm. No lobsters flown in from you know Jamaica or somewhere and uh, chilled water <laughs> Nothing, at a certain temperature. If James, or... Burton, if James Burton, Ronnie Tut, or even me wanted a Coke or anything, concession stand. <laughs> Nothing except – and Elvis didn't drink Coca-Colas. He brought his own Mountain Valley water. But that was the writer, except for the production where I had to have risers and timpani drums and stuff, but – as far as what you were referring to, that was it. So my question, Charles, during the seasons at um, in Vegas, were you still involved in those ticket sales? No, I didn't have to do anything in Vegas except hang with the Colonel and book shows because they had they took care of everything else. When you say hang with the Colonel, what was hanging with the Colonel? What did you do? What 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 sort of was he just constantly a twenty four hour a day <laughs> work person? You're in his office all day booking another tour. You know, sometimes we'd go down and we'd have three meals a day with him because food, he was food driven. 
I'd have to gamble with him sometimes. And if I did that, sometimes it was four and five hours at a roulette table. Tell us that story where you're sitting around the table. There was this big, massive table with people and and the colonel passed the, his plate around. That was at the uh, uh, Trader Vicks in Beverly Hills. Right. This was the first week that I went to California when they said, come out there. Well, the first time I got there, Colonel had a whole soundstage on the MGM studio lot. So when I pull up in the rent car, man, this is where they're making movies. The guard comes over. Yeah. You know, I look like a hippie back then. What do you want? I said, I'm here to see Colonel Parker. What's your name? I had to show an ID to get in the gate. Then he gave me a map how to get back to where I was going. So I go back. I'm saying it's probably 8, 30, 9 o'clock in the morning. And I sit in the outer office with the male secretary, Jim O'Brien, all day. I can hear Colonel and them back there. I've never met Colonel all day. At least when he ordered lunch, he ordered me a ham sandwich. And he said, okay, we're going to go to Trader Vicks tonight for dinner. Okay. So we go to Trader Vicks, which is a real nice uh, Polynesian restaurant. And there's probably, I don't know, 12, 13 people, maybe. RCA executives, Tom Diskin, George Park Hill, Miss Miller, which is now Loanne Parker, and Tom Hewlett, myself, the colonel. And I think that was about it. So we all order. The food comes. And I, I start to eat. And Tom says, no, don't eat yet. Well, I'm thinking, well, we're going to do a prayer. Nope. Here comes a blank. Tape, uh, plate being passed around the table. And I had what they had a, what they called a plantain banana, a plantain banana, whatever they're called. I slapped that right on the plate and it goes around. And the plate gets put right in front of Colonel. Now we can eat. So I'm thinking, that's kind of funny. But anyway, I didn't pay much attention to it. We ate and had a good time. I'm, I didn't speak to anybody because I'm the new kid on the block. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm. when the check comes, the, guy, the waiter walks over to the colonel because he's at the head of the table. He said, don't give that to me. I didn't order anything. <laughs> I damn near fell out of my chair. I, said, I, I can't laugh out loud, but I had to bite my tongue. I almost fell out of my chair. He said, I did not believe he had said that. Yeah, he did. <laughs> huh. I did hear a story that I'd, I'd love you to tell uh, the people listening to this about your family, Elvis asking to have a photo taken with you and your wife and your daughter. The photo, yeah. Yeah. Because that's an insight into the side of Elvis that, that a lot of people obviously clearly never got a chance to see. Oh, Elvis was a great guy too. We were playing either Dallas or Fort Worth. I, they all went together for me after all those years. And I'm getting everything ready for the show. Elvis gets there, put him in his dressing room. I go back out to make sure the security around the stage is there. And then... Um, Esposito himself comes up and says, Charles, I just want you to bring your family back and get a photo. Wow. Really? He said, yeah. So I go out in the audience and get my wife, my little girl, she's four years old, and take them back to the dressing room. Well, keep in mind, when you're in high school, when you go to the gym in the changing room where you change into your gym clothes, it's just a white tile, real sterile room. Mm. Well, that's what these dressing rooms so we go in, my wife's holding her, and Elvis tries to take her. Nope, she's having nothing to do with it. He kept trying. We've been there, I don't know, we were there probably four, maybe five, maybe five minutes. Felt like 15. 
And I was so embarrassed. And she was having nothing to do with it. So it's then he said, look, we'll be back in Texas next year. We'll do it then. I said, okay. I'm, I apologize. I said, no, no, it's fine. So we get outside the dressing room, and my wife asked her, why didn't you get your picture made with Elvis? And she says, well, I wasn't going to let that man in that funny costume in that big bathroom hold me. I said, to this day, I said, daughter, you're the only girl on the face of this earth that refused a photo with Elvis. But she still vividly remembers it. Wow. So that's a terrific story. You were with the colonel when you heard of Elvis's passing? Yeah, I was. I was in another room, but up in the suite, yeah. That must have been chaotic. I was on the phone with Hershey. I'll never forget this. Hershey, Pennsylvania, booking a tour. And the colonel said, hang up, Charlie, get in here. I said, Colonel, he said, hang up. So I told the guys, look, I can tell by the tone of the voice, I better get in there. I said, I'll call you right back. So I go in there, and uh, I forgot who I was in the room. Hewlett, me, George Parkell, Miss Miller. I had one of Elvis's guys. It might have been Lamar. I'm not sure who it was. Probably was Lamar. And he said, Elvis has passed away. He told us, whoa, you know, that hits you like a ton of bricks. After we all kind of regained composure, uh, we have to do refunds and we have to answer all of the calls from the venues of the tour that we were going to start that night. So I started fielding those calls. And the colonel says, do you want to go to the funeral in uh, Memphis? I said, well, look, Colonel, I got to solve all these problems. And much as I'd like to, I said, it's best for me to take care of the business. Because number one, we have to deal with these same venues doing our other rock shows. So I can't just ignore them and not do anything. So I flew back to Texas and everybody else went to Memphis. And uh, man, I'm, I was two weeks trying to sort it all out because each county, city, and state had different laws of what you did with the money after the, when, it, when this happened. Because it didn't happen too often. And in one place, we had to leave it there five years. Really? Yeah. Did you have a, a sense at that time that you thought that would be, that we certainly wouldn't be sitting here nearly 50 years later talking about Elvis and talking about his music and, and that it would still be a, a, an ongoing money-making machine? Did you think it would, with his death it would all oh, just stop? absolutely not. Absolutely. You know, Sam, y'all know Sam and I do a lunch or a burger or one, once a week. But anyway, Sam was Elvis's bodyguard, but we talk exactly what you just said about it. We're sitting here and we're still in awe that people want to hear our stories. Elvis is popular. All of the tribute artists, all of the Elvis festivals. So in answer to your question, never in our my whole life would I have thought it, no. So Charles, um, tell us a story when uh, Sonny West came up to you and said... Um, oh, okay. Once again, I'm out getting the security ready and Sonny says, Elvis wants to see you. Well, the first thing I thought of is, what did I do? <laughs> so I said, he said, no, no, it's all good. Okay. So we go back to the dressing room. Don't forget, I've already met him at the door and put him in the dressing room. So I go back to the dressing room, and Elvis says, come here. And I said, okay. I walk over, and I'm still just wondering what's fixing to hit me, right? He said, you've been with us now. I'm doing a good job. I want to I give you something. He opened a little green box, took out a TCB, and put it around my neck. Man, I wanted to cry. I was so emotional. But uh, uh, that, to me, was one of the most, you know, 
once again, the CCB, but getting it was so emotional for mm. me. That's the highlight of my whole thing with Elvis. Because when you get that, you're in his inner circle. And um, he was nice to um, your family and your wife. I think um, when she was in hospital as well, she thought he thought about her and. Yeah, it was uh, when we played uh, Detroit on a New Year's Eve in Pontiac Stadium. I had to spend the whole month of December in Detroit. But anyway, my wife had to go to the hospital for two or three days. I flew home, and after the first day I was home, they delivered five dozen yellow roses to her room. Damn, you know, I know where it probably is from. I went over and looked, the boys, and I put it back, and I told her. The nurses were curious. And they went over, and one of the nurses opened the card, Elvis Presley. And they started disappearing one at a time. <laughs> but that's okay. She got great, great care after that. Charles, there would have been an enormous amount of people. I mean, backstage area these days is like a, is like a train station, like a, an airport. There's people everywhere. There's, you know, a million hangers on. Uh, Elvis kept it pretty, pretty uh, you know, basic. That no one was allowed in. And, uh, I mean, I've read that many times. There were a lot of celebs who wanted to meet him, weren't there, and wanted to come backstage and have their moment with Elvis. How did you handle oh, that? Oh, my God, yes. Oh, absolutely. Now, occasionally we did make accommodations. You know, sure, you had to accommodate Muhammad Ali. You had to accommodate uh, Oral Roberts because we were playing his venue. And in Alabama, there's that famous picture of uh, the governor, Wallace, coming in. But sometimes they, if you're playing their venue, you can, nothing you can do about it. But, yeah, everybody wanted backstage, sure. Um, I took Elton back to meet him once. My, my job was backstage security. And nobody, not even the venue manager, was allowed backstage. Just the band and the people on the show, and that was it, which made it real easy because on rock shows, as you know, there's tons of people backstage. Yeah. Saw you tell a story about Elizabeth Taylor arriving in a limousine and you're (laughs) making her go through the front door of the venue, for God's sake. And I have to tell you, that's one of the hardest things I had to do in my whole life. You know, because normally, should I have let her in backstage? Yeah, but the colonel was there that day. If the colonel had been a day ahead, I probably would have done it. Nobody would have cared, you know. But with the colonel there, you got to go by the book. So, but yeah, telling her no was horrible. And then I think I may have added to the story. After Elvis passed and I started managing a guy named uh, Razzie Bailey, we played the Silk Cut Festival in London. Marty Robbins and Roy Orbison were the headliners. So it was Easter weekend. Nothing was open. There was a play called Little Foxes with Elizabeth Taylor and the guy from Get Smart that talked in the shoe. So we went to see the play because we were bored. When When the artist comes out backstage, they sign autographs and stuff at the, the theater. So Razzie, let's go back and meet her. I said, you might want to go by yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want me to go with you on that one. Yeah. <laughs> Elizabeth Taylor might have knocked you back. She might have said no. <laughs> she probably wouldn't have remembered me, but I didn't want to chance it. Oh, she might have remembered you just because you said no, because I imagine there wouldn't have been a lot of people said no to Elizabeth yeah, Taylor. <laughs> One of the few people that ever said no to her, yeah. Did yeah. you did you ever have to, in that role, say no to Elvis? No. Nobody said no to Elvis. <laughs> Nobody. You know, 
And that's one thing that Sam and I always talk about when we give our talks. Elvis didn't hear the word no. You may, you may say it to him, but he didn't face him. He didn't hear it. But let's go back to the Elizabeth Taylor story. Yeah. I don't tell all of it. Ten minutes later, the guard said, there's another limo backstage. I said, I told you no. He said, well, they said you're expecting them. I said, well, if it isn't Elvis or the colonel, no. He said, wait, okay, I'm doing nothing. I go back out there. And it's three of the guys from the group Chicago, Walt and uh, Peter and somebody else. I said, okay, guys, park your car way back in the corner and run out front. Don't come back until the lights, house lights are on. No problem. I did let them in because we're doing all their shows. They were making lots of money off of it. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough, too. But anyway, yeah. But I did do that right after Elizabeth Taylor. So what's your favorite Elvis song? That's a good question. I always say, can't it fall in love? Because that's it. We're done for the day. We're going home. Or we're going to the plane to go home. I don't know. It, uh, I, grew, I love all the early stuff, the 50s and 60s stuff. I love it. That's my favorite era of Elvis. That's where I grew up with. But uh, I don't know. I, I don't guess I really have a real favorite one. The Inner Sanctum don't seem to like or don't seem to talk a lot about Elvis's movies. Did did you watch them and did you like them and do you have a favorite? With all due respect, the only movie I liked was King Creole. Mm-hmm. I, I truly, no disrespect to mm-hmm. Elvis, I just didn't get into the other movies. They were never meant to be cinematic uh, masterpieces. But they all made money. Absolutely. And everybody wants to say, you know, why didn't Elvis make a serious movie? Well, there's all sorts of rumors and everything. I, one night, Colonel Parker, I was in Palm Springs. He said, look, we're going to go have dinner with Hal Wallace. Hal Wallace, do you all know who Hal Wallace was? Yes, he was Paramount Pictures producer, wasn't he? He produced most of Elvis's movies. So we go to his house, and when we go in the front door, the, the maid meets us, and there's a statue on a pedestal there. Colonel tops his hat. It's a statue, and the statue starts doing that a little. That maid grabbed that statue and stopped it. And Colonel went on in, and I says, what's with that? And she said, that's an original Dega. <laughs> oh shit! Okay, probably worth a million dollars, right? So we go in and we sit, and they're, they're, Mr. and Miss Wallace are finishing their massages. So we had to wait fifteen or twenty minutes. So we come out with chat. I'm going to go to have dinner. I sit beside Miss Wallace. Colonel's across, and Hal's at the end of the table. Well, I let Colonel and Hal do all the talking. Except finally, I decided I'm going to ask the question, and. I said, Mr. Wallace, and I could see Colonel stiffen up, <laughs> thinking, oh, shit, what's he going to say? I said, how come Elvis never made a serious movie? And that's always a question now. He said, that's an easy answer, Charles. No studio would finance it. So what? He said, why would they take the greatest singer in the world, put him in a movie, and not let him sing? He said, a studio wouldn't finance it. So I got that one from the horse's mouth. Mm. So the even if Elvis wanted to. I guess he probably couldn't. I don't know. The most logical answer to the question that everyone's asked for years. Yeah, yeah it is a logical answer. I mean, yeah. yeah it's Because once again, the movies are a business. You know, I'd like to see Elvis in a movie. Well, go get $20 million and finance it yourself. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not going to happen with the industry. So, Charles, I was going to 
mention, uh, was there one particular tour or show that went wrong or Elvis was late, lights went out, anything happened during any shows? I guess, well, the thing that could have happened, which didn't happen, was in Oklahoma, the fire monster came up just as the intermission, the first half finished, says we have a bomb threat, we have to evacuate the building. I knew there wasn't one, but yet, you know, what are you going to do? So I said, look, go tell the colonel that, not me. Colonel's sitting back there with his cane, got his cigar in his mouth, and the fire marshal comes over. And, Charlie, what's wrong? I said, well, the fire marshal here says we have to evacuate the building. There's a bomb threat. Oh, well, call Elvis and tell him to turn around and go back to the hotel. The colonel gets up and starts walking out the door. And the fire marshal says, well, where's he going? I said, he said, well, if there's a bomb threat, I'm not staying in here. And right then, the fire marshal knew that every bit of his love leverage was gone. Well, maybe it's not a serious threat. Don't worry about it. He was just trying to get some money. Oh, God. Yeah, colonel, and colonel get up and started walking out. So it was a threat. I ain't staying. Turn Elvis around. That's, that's how he handled things, you know. I loved it. Did you see the recent movie, Charles? Yes, I did. What did you think of it? I really liked it. I saw it twice. I actually picked up on some things the second time that I missed the first because it moves very fast. It's a fast movie. And Sam and I talk. It's like you take a whole bunch of Elvis history and put it in a blender, and that's the movie. Because it just, you know. But I loved it. It brought so many new fans into the Elvis world. Yeah. When you hear people talk about Elvis these days, uh, it, does it make you sad? Does it make you happy? It, how, does, how do you feel about that? It makes me very happy that people want to talk about him. But what the movie's done <laughs> is that people want to talk about Colonel now. In the past, they didn't. Oh, he's an evil guy. We don't want to talk about him. Now they want to talk about him, and I, I think it's, uh, it's wonderful. Yeah, because he was certainly much maligned, wasn't he? I mean, the the the, the image was that he was a, a control freak who you know had all the money and and looked after himself above and beyond anything else, which is totally not true. And one thing for sure, even the colonel said one night on the only interview he gave was nobody told Elvis what to do. Nobody controlled Elvis Presley, not even Colonel. I mean, Elvis, <laughs> and if you'd ask any of the guys. They'll tell you the same thing. Nobody told Elvis what to do. The colonel took all the heat for everything, which was his job. You know, because Elvis would defer everything to the colonel. He was afraid. Elvis would, the way I understand it is, Elvis would rather make no decision than a bad decision. So, therefore, he threw everything at colonel. He deferred everything to Colonel Parker because he knew colonel would handle it. Charles, tell us a bit about how you were planning to go to um to England, to London, to uh, check out yeah, the Whitley yeah. Arena. Yeah. We had finally convinced Elvis to go to England. It took a while. So the last tour that we didn't do, I had reservations after the tour to fly to London to book Wembley Arena, not the stadium, which is 10,000 seats. For the first time, they had seven days in a row open. So we were going. Colonel was not going to go. But see, Tom and I did everything anyway, and Elvis had no problem with that. So, boy, that would have been so big. And that was in 1977, was it? Mm-hmm. I don't remember what day the last day of the tour that didn't happen. 
but I was going to come home, spend two days, and then go. Yeah. No, that's sad. That's sad. Charles, it's been fabulous to, to catch up with you and have a chat. Thank you so much for your time and, and sharing your memories. Oh, thank you, guys. We, we could do this for more than an hour if you wanted to, you know. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. It's, uh, it's, uh, there's so many so many stories and so many uh, things that, uh, that obviously you're involved with, 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 with Elvis over the years. We thank you and so you, much. You know, another story before we go, El, there were no complimentary tickets to an Elvis show. That's right. Elvis- I've, heard, I've heard you say that, and I, I, there has to be some somewhere. No, no. Now, did I cover up two from my wife? Yeah, but I threw it into another expense, <laughs> and Colonel knew it. But no, Elvis, the first day of each tour, I would give Joe Esposito 10 tickets to each show on the tour. He would give me a check that Elvis wrote paying for all those tickets. There were no comps. Wow. When we would go to an arena for the first time that we played an arena, the thing that I would always have to do is go count the rows on the floor and check them against my ticket manifest. Nine times out of ten, there's a double X row at the back. It's not on there. Hmm. Well, I have to go see Mr. So-and-so. You know that we have an extra row on the floor? Yeah, I had to accommodate the mayor, and I said, you got to pay for those. He said, I know. Yeah, they would write a separate check for that extra row. But, you know, if I didn't catch you, he wouldn't have told me. Yeah, Towards the end, um, you ended up on stage a lot too as um, security for Elvis as well during the show, Charles? Yeah, whenever he he would finish Can't Help Stalling in Love, I would get up and I'd be on the end. And uh, that's when he goes to shake hands, he'd put your hand on his back and then shake hands so that nobody could pull him off the stage. But you'd see us all on our knee in front of you know, all of us across the front of the stage. Yeah, you've got some pictures to show that too. Yeah, it was an honor and a blessing. I and I, I wouldn't, I, I cherish the memories. But it's like you said, would I ever have thought today we would still be doing this? I mean, that was just in Australia uh, last year, or this year, I guess. This year, yeah. Uh, who would have ever thought? That would happen, not me. Has anyone you've worked with come close to being the the same sort of charismatic star that Elvis was? Nope, nope. Because don't forget, Led Zeppelin is in a different, a whole different jar. Yep. But as as far as an individual singer, nobody has ever come close. Nobody. And I've worked with almost all the big stars. Yeah. Hey, Charles, thank you so much for your time. Charles, thank you so much, buddy. You got it. Y'all have a good one. Thank you. Fascinating stuff, and uh, it's good to get a perspective on uh, someone who actually got on well with the Colonel and speaks highly of him, uh, you know, to the point where he said, I, I love the man. Yeah, exactly. But, um, <laughs> uh, you know, I, um, yeah, I'm still a little bit uh, <laughs> hesitant yeah. to say, oh, I like the Colonel, you know. Yeah. Well, he'd be but, one. Of, he'd be one of few who uh, who would say that because of uh, you know what we've what we've sort of heard and seen and read and uh, and people have talked yeah. about since. Um, but I love the Elizabeth Taylor story. That's uh, that's yeah, a classic. That's that that is a classic. Now, speaking of which, our next guest in episode four of this uh, show uh, has this man got some stories to tell. My goodness, mate. Now, 
I don't know, Kevin, whether you knew before I went full-time into entertainment, I was a hairdresser. I, you know, you mentioned that once or twice, yes. Yeah, so this, I really want to hear the stories that this guy's got to tell because he was Elvis's personal hairdresser and also, you know, spiritual advisor, so yep. Larry Geller. And uh, really looking forward to hearing his stories. And, and hairdresser, to the, hairdresser to the stars before he hooked up with Elvis because he was with uh, Peter Sellers and all sorts of people who he was involved exactly. with. Exactly, yeah. You, he, I'll let him mention uh, those those famous names, you know, Frank Sinatra, et cetera. You know, yep. can you imagine like these guys just coming into your salon every day. It's like, I don't know if I'd then, like to be the bloke standing over the top of Frank Sinatra with a pair of scissors in my hand. I'm not sure that that yeah. is uh, – I think there's occupational health and safety issues there that might click you, in. You've got, to be, you've got to be confident, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> make sure you hold the scissors right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, if you have any questions or any thoughts or any, uh, anything you want to pass on to us, we've got an email address that you can, uh, you can jump on and, uh, and get in touch with us too. Elvis Presley podcast at gmail.com. Beautiful. Until the next time, Mark, take care. Look after yourself. Thanks, Kevin. Awesome. Bye.